0: Welcome to Don't Read Drunk, a podcast about books and booze. I'm Jenny, and I'll be your host. Hi, welcome back. Today we are talking about The It Girl by Ruth Ware, and it's good to get back to some lightness after the heaviness from last week. Just to warn you again, I've got a snoring pug beside me, so if you hear the snoring noises, I apologize. It's been kind of a weird week for me. I am taking vacation starting on Friday and I'm taking a little more than a week off. I'm excited about that so I can rest and I can catch up on some reading. The pain job has been keeping me very busy, which is good since I've got bills to pay, but it is pretty exhausting. (laughs) I've been feeling a little off, getting used to kind of my own new normal, I guess. My life has changed a lot. Due to my anxiety, I definitely do better with the And I've got a pretty good schedule going on, so that helps. I just have been having increased anxiety lately and this off feeling. And I don't know if it's, you know, trying to get my bearings again or, or what exactly is going on. Hopefully the vacation will help, though. The kid and I are spending some time up in northern Wisconsin. So we'll be spending some time in nature. And that always definitely does make me feel better and it helps me feel grounded. Since we're talking about a thriller today, what else would we be drinking but a red wine? I don't have my First Leaf subscription anymore at the moment, but I do still have some wines left over from them, so I pulled out a red that I've been wanting to try, and I loved First Leaf, so if you're on the fence about trying them out, definitely try them. I only stopped my subscription due to a change in my finances, but I hope to use them again down the road. And also, they do not sponsor me at all. I just really like them, and I really enjoyed the service. So that's why I like to share things that uh, I've enjoyed, even though I'm not getting paid for it, just some cool things that I have found. This was a 2018 Taluris Valley Petite Syrah, and it's a delicious red wine, even better than I had hoped. It was slightly tart with a rich, robust fruit flavor. The flavor notes on this one are tobacco, black pepper, and fruit preserves. To me, it wasn't as strong in that black pepper flavor as some Syrahs I've had. It was more subtle than spicy, because there are some Syrahs that you can really taste that black pepper, and this was a lot more mild, and I really did like that flavor. Recommended pairings for this are beef, lamb, wild game, So I love lamb and I've had lamb in things recently, but not like a good medium rare lamb shoulder or anything like that for way too long. And since we're going on vacation, I was like, oh, maybe I could get some lamb somewhere, but we kind of just do easy foods. I don't do really any fancy cooking, but I'm thinking I will plan some lamb for when my folks are visiting and I'll pair it with a bottle of this petite Syrah because I know they will like both of those. It's definitely a smooth flavor and the earthy notes are perfect for a red meat meal. So today's author is Ruth Ware and I loved her bio from her website. It was really long so I'm not going to share the whole thing. I'll do a shortened version of it but if you're interested in the full one is great and I definitely recommend that you check it out. So here is her bio. So I guess if you've clicked this page you're interested in finding more about me. Here is the paragraph that my publishers put on the back cover of my books. Ruth Ware is an international number one bestseller. Her thrillers In a Dark, Dark Wood, The Woman in Cabin 10, The Lion Game, The Death of Mrs. Westaway, The Turn of the Key, and One by One have appeared on bestseller lists around the world, including the Sunday Times and New York Times. Her books have been optioned by both film and TV, and she's published in more than 40 languages. Ruth lives near Brighton with her family. Visit www.ruthware.com to find out more, which I will have that link in the show notes as well. But that was on her bio. (laughs) I guess maybe I didn't need to read that part. At this point, I should probably admit that by far, the most interesting thing about me is my books, which are full of murder, family secrets, toxic friendships, and things that go bump in the night, in contrast with my own very mundane, peaceful existence. I've often, often asked which of my characters most resembles me, and I'm never quite sure how to feel about this, since my main characters are usually complicated, conflicted, lonely, spiky, and sometimes downright criminal. Of course, they're brave, defiant, defiant, dogged, and occasionally very selfless, much more so than me, actually. If I was faced with half the setbacks my characters encounter, I'm pretty sure I'd pack up and go home. The truth is that, barring a few obvious overlaps, Nora in A Dark Dark Wood as a writer, Isa in The Lion Game as a parent, the biggest autobiographical element of most of my books is the main characters are generally intolerant of bad coffee. (laughs) Right now, I'm a full-time writer. I feel very lucky to be able to type that. I've done a whole lot of other jobs from waitressing to best-selling, book-selling, and as much as I love them, my dream was always to be an author, and so I was glad when I was finally able to make that happen. I always wanted to be a writer, right from when I was a little girl. I was always scribbling out little stories, and when I was seven or eight, my mom went back to college and took a typing course, so then I began to type them out on her old-fashioned typewriter which somehow felt more like a real book. All through my teens, I kept writing mostly on sheets of A4 paper, clipped in a ring binder, and the stories got longer and longer until they began to resemble full-length books. A novel would take about one whole ring binder, but I was always too shy to show them to anyone, apart from my best friend who read a couple of them. So they spent most of their time under my bed, hidden from prying eyes. Eventually, when I was in my 30s and had two very small children, I realized that my writing was a hobby, and that I didn't really have time for hobbies anymore. I was snatching writing time in 30-minute chunks here and there while the baby napped, time I should have more sensibly have spent washing my hair or catching up on my own sleep. And I realized that unless I did something drastic, I was going to find my writing time whittled down further and further until it likely disappeared altogether. So I would say by far, this is one of my favorite author author bios. And I'm definitely going to add her to the list of authors I want to have a beer with. Despite being so well known, she seems really down to earth. And I just think it would be fun to hang out with her. And I did love all of her other books too. She talks about her other books death of mrs westaway was probably one of my favorites and one by one i just really liked the old-fashioned gothic feel of the death of mrs westaway even though it was set in modern times and one by one i mentioned this in another podcast recently too it's got that trapped um trapped characters in it and and I like that in stories. I was really waiting for this book to come out. I always enjoyed Ruth Ware's books and this one was on my list to read as soon as it came out and this was just released on July 12th so it's very fresh. I went and I picked this one up at the bookstore because I couldn't wait for it to be delivered. I do order books online but I love bookstores so it's still always good to support your local bookstore when you can. I was so excited that I sent pictures to a bunch of my friends and to my mom. (laughs) She's going to read my copy when I get to see her again. But I was sending the picture of like, look what I'm doing this weekend. I'm going to read this book. I'm so excited. (laughs) If Girl Fall is the story of a wealthy and well-known college student, April, who was murdered. The story follows her best friend, Hannah, and splits time between when they were students together and the current time, which is 10 years after the murder. The man convicted of April's murder has just died in prison, and now there are questions that are coming up about his innocence. As someone who's interested in true crime, this is a question that comes up often a lot in murder cases. Sometimes I think the question comes up too often. So in the case of the book, I was a little hesitant right off the bat. Yes, the police do get it wrong many innocent people are convicted according to the highcourt.co which i have a link in the show notes between 2 and 10% of people convicted are wrongfully convicted and given the number of people that are currently in prison that is actually a really huge number of people when i first looked at that 2 and 10% i'm like oh that's not too bad but when you look at the numbers and the actual numbers of people convicted, it seems a lot bigger. And of course, this is an estimate because we don't really know for sure. False accusations are present in 70% of all wrong full convictions, according to the website. And this is kind of the heart of the matter of the book, too. Hannah saw the man, a porter at the school, coming from the room where April is murdered. And Hannah is traumatized by the event and doesn't remember a lot about it. So she questions herself and her memories. We've talked about this before, memories are so tricky. We feel 100% confident in certain memories but it's been proven that human memory is extremely unreliable. Well, in the novel, Hannah does know the porter from regularly seeing him on campus, so she's confident in her identification of him, and she did have her friend with her who also saw him. In a lot of court cases, we rely on people's identifying a perpetrator when witness testimony is one of the most unreliable parts of a case. One of the most popular cases of this in happened in wisconsin and it's a woman who misidentified stephen avery as her rapist avery was later released based on dna evidence that exonerated him that poor woman was convict convinced that he was her attacker and of course the whole stephen avery case is like gigantic and it's more than just that it's more it's about way more than just this but this is a really good example of how she was convinced that he was her attacker and she misidentified him. Our memories are unreliable, but our memories before, during and after a traumatizing event are even less reliable less reliable. since this is also a suspense novel we need to take into consideration too that Hannah might not be a reliable narrator so part of the time you're questioning how much does she really remember and how much does she know? is a young woman who comes from a different station in life than her wealthy classmates. She feels out of place and at times has imposter syndrome, so that she might not quite deserve to be at this prestigious mm-hmm. school. And I do love the setting. I love the opulence and wealth that April exudes, as well as the decadence of the school i loved college so for me it's fun to feel like i'm back in that environment and imagine myself back there plus i love learning i'm geek that way i love the whole education process so it's kind of fun to imagine you're in that location well i didn't go to anywhere where i was making friends with like wealthy and famous people it was still like a different world hannah feeling out of place also gives her kind of an air of mistrust though at the same time, I'm empathetic with her. She went through something extremely horrific, was traumatized, and continues to be re-traumatized. Where shines a not-so-flattering light on the damage that is done to people who are part of a murder or a missing person's case due to our kind of collective obsession with true crime? And I admit I'm part of the problem, too, I try not to, and I don't like to consume media that takes advantage of people. In the book, Hannah ignores the requests. And one of the reasons that I like listening to the True Crime Garage podcast, which I've talked about, is that they seem to be really respectful of the families involved. They don't cover cases that families have asked them not to, and they feature cases where the families are happy to have as much information out as possible, where they can maybe help break the case and find the responsible party, which concerns me about digging up questions about a person's innocence that there always are going to be gaps. I don't know that there is a perfect conviction out there. If there is, it would be rare. One of the recent episodes, too, of True Crime Garage that I was listening to about Maura Murray's case, and if you don't know about Maura Murray, she went missing under suspicious circumstances in 2004, her sister, Julie, was on True Crime Garage to continue to share her sister's story, but she specifically talked about how hurtful it was to the families that people were telling lies about her father molesting her sister. And I could just put myself in her shoes and imagine that not only are you going through this horrific situation where your sister's missing or where your daughter's missing and these lies are being told about your family, there is zero evidence that of this and it was really talked a lot, uh, a lot about by many armchair detectives online, and there's still information about it that you can find. That's the part of the harm of starting rumors and perpetuating lies in open cases that can cause more damage. And it's one of the reasons that I personally don't try to speculate in many cases anymore, especially those unsolved cases. There are just too many unknowns. While I do believe that families want to make sure they have the right person convicted. There are times that I think bringing up those questions is just hurtful to the family. Hannah very much struggles with moving on, and I really feel sorry for her. It's not only re-traumatizing, which I think Ware writes very well, but it's hard to move on when she hasn't dealt with things properly. Quinn told me the other day, all moms say that time heals all wounds. And he said, "You, I've never said that him. (laughs) And I told him that, well, I don't know if I believe that. I said, you don't always heal from things. You just learn how to manage the hurt. And that's what gets easier is that you can better able to manage that hurt. It's not that you forget that pain. You just can manage it better. And Hannah seems to have stuck her head in the sand as a response rather than dealing with the trauma. I'm a huge supporter of therapy. I think everyone should get therapy regardless. Life is not easy and therapy can give us tools to help deal with life, even if someone doesn't have a mental illness or traumatizing events in their past. It's also traumatizing for Hannah bringing up the past, as I think it can be for a lot of people, especially from a time like Hannah's looking back at, a time in your youth, like your late teens and early 20s. I know that I was not the best person at that age. I made some mistakes and I don't really want to dig up the mistakes that I made. I would prefer to move on from them and celebrate the person I've become since then because I definitely think I'm a lot better person than I was back then. I do think revisiting trauma in a healthy environment like therapy can give it less power over you. I don't think it's healthy to hide your head in the sand. April as the it girl is a wonderful character. I love the attitude that she has nothing to prove. She exudes confidence. She made me think about Paris Hilton a little bit. And since I've recently talked about how my original opinion of her was, I think, kind of unfair, it it definitely kind of brought her to front of mind. Where does include a bonus chapter in the book, and she meant both Britney Spears and Paris Hilton. She makes good points, and this is a quote, a huge problem is it's all part of a bigger societal pattern of placing people, particularly women, into reductive little boxes in a way that's hugely damaging. So I think April may have some elements of both Spears and Hilton. Ware doesn't do any victim shaming. She portrays April as a beautiful yet still imperfect human someone who has the same hopes and dreams that we all do. And I think it's important to remember that when we're talking about people of wealth and celebrity. Yes, they are different in a lot of ways. They have experiences that have made them out of touch, with what the average person faces, but they are still human at a base level, and I think it's important that we remember that. Ware also brings light to how hard it is being a woman and sharing your experience with men who make us uncomfortable. The guilt or innocence of the porter in murdering April is kind of besides the point, I think, in what Ware is trying to say. Hannah has these experiences with him that are inappropriate, but she feels like she can't report them, and when she does report them, She is brushed off and her experiences are kind of explained away. And I looked this up too. An estimated 80% of rapes and sexual assaults go unreported, and it's easy to see why. I also think we're purposefully made things more complicated for Hannah and the reader to reconcile with because Hannah did break the rules in one of the innocent incidents. Regardless of Hannah's breaking the rules, she nor any other woman should be put in the position that of the way that she was treated and um, how she was treated by the porter. It's victim blaming at its worst, and I fell for it at first. (laughs) Though after reflecting, whatever Hannah did, the stalking and the creepy behavior is totally unacceptable, and we should not only speak up, but speak out against it. Overall, I enjoy Ware's writing in the story. She's descriptive with out being overly warty. I could easily envision their suite in my head, first as the rooms of the two young women and then later as offices as they were converted after April's murder. The story is solid and I suspected, like everyone at some point, I enjoyed the story and I read it quickly. The only perhaps like complaint that I have is that it really wasn't suspenseful until about the second half of the novel. The setup of the story is great and enjoyable to read, but I can definitely see someone not liking this as it is a very slow burn. I gave it a 4 out of 5. Goodreads gives it a 3.99. Other reviewers said, quote, I was intrigued by the premise of the It Girl and mostly how it played out, but it's like 70 to 100 pages longer than where's other books and it feels like it. Someone else said, quote, took me a while to get into the story and took a while to learn the characters. But for me, learning the characters was kind of the fun part. I really actually enjoyed that. And I love how, where does her character development? Someone else said they had high hopes and enjoyed it until about 70 to 75% through and that the big reveal wasn't so big. Familiar setup, though. Yes, all the stories have been told. We've, we know this there's there's not a whole lot new that you can do anymore, but it's how the author tells the story in their way that is different. Excellent writing and well done character-driven novel. So it seems overall the negative reviews were kind of like that it's done, been done before and they were let down by the reveal. I thought it was incredibly well written, might even be her best novel to date. And I love how beautifully she weaves the ideas of society's true crime obsession and how it can be harmful that women aren't just objects, the importance of believing and protecting women from dangerous individuals. It was an enjoyable book with some great statements from where. So media recommendations for this week. Uh, True Crime Garage, though I know I've mentioned it before, I wanted to mention it again. And that's pretty much all I've been doing is listening to that podcast. (laughs) I've been so busy. I really like how they handle the cases and are respectful of the victims and the families. I like how they talk things out and share their own perspectives. The captain still comes across as like a bro guy, and that does annoy me sometimes. He could be a very nice guy. This could just be his shtick, but it's still not my favorite. That's the only negative thing I really have to say about this podcast. And I definitely think they're one of the better true crime podcasts out there, and they are worth a listen. So check them out. Thanks for joining me. You can find me on Instagram at don't read drunk. You can email me at don't read drunk at gmail.com. Check out my website at don't read This is a hobby cut podcast, so please feel free to support me through PayPal. You can do a one-time donation on PayPal using my email don't read drunk at gmail.com. There is no apostrophe in the don't. You can also support this podcast by becoming a Patreon at patreoncom drunk. and that link is in the show notes as well. Thank you so much to my sponsors, Aaron Ruiz at One Up Till Sunup, who created the music. You can find Aaron and One Up Till Sunup on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, Avenue Coffee House. You can find them on Facebook and their website, Avenue-CoffeeHouse.com. They have also uh, opened up a new coffee and donut shop called Supernova which is downtown Milwaukee, and they make these amazing homemade donuts. So if you're in the Milwaukee area, definitely take some time to check them out. Next episode, we're going to be talking about Needful Things by Stephen King. And because I'm on vacation, I cannot wait to read this. I, I think I will have some time this at this point. Bye and talk to you soon.